I would guess that most of you have likely been to multiple Christmas or Christmas Eve services over the years. Since I was young, I've, I've probably been to about 20 or more, I would guess, Christmas church services. And something that's interesting to me is the passage we're going to look at today has never been read in any of those services. I've never heard this passage read, taught, or preached on in my life. Although it is smack dab right in the middle of the biblical Christmas story. <laughs> never heard it taught, never heard it preached, never even heard it read at a Christmas service. And I would venture to guess you've probably never heard it read, taught, or preached either in a Christmas service. Now, why is that? <laughs> why do we skip over this rather large passage in the Christmas story? Well, let's take a look at it. Our passage today comes from uh, Matthew chapter 2, and this is verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. And I'm actually going to look at different parts of chapter 2 if you want to get your Bible out and look at that. Right now we'll just read 13 through 23, which is in your bulletin. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two, two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for this amazing story of your son. Of just the most wondrous miracle of the incarnation. We are so grateful for Christmas. We are so grateful that you have left us the story of Christmas and the events that surrounded it. 
because they teach us so much and they cause us to worship. And so we are grateful. We ask you now that these words would sink deep down into our hearts, that we might be changed and that we might worship at the feet of your Son who came to save us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so why is this narrative almost always left out of our Christmas services? Well, I think it's because of this. I think, you know, I, when, when, we, when we think of Christmas, the words that typically pop in our minds are words like peace, joy, gift, light, angels, baby. Those are the words that pop in our heads. But how about words like slaughter, danger, fleeing, brutality, fear. Now those, those words and themes usually don't come up this time of year, do they? Those words don't match all the glitz and the lights and the parades. Don't normally see a Christmas float with the word slaughter on it, do we? No. We don't like that kind of talk at Christmas. No, no, no. We want the other list. Give us the joy, peace, and the angels list. That's what we like. Give us that list. The only problem is the true Christmas story gives us both lists. The true Christmas story gives us both. Now, interestingly, in the story we read today, Jesus is not the main character. We don't like that either. Who is the main character of our story today? Herod, the king of Judah is the main character. Now, who is Herod? Well, Herod was appointed by the Roman emperor in about 40 BC. And he was an awful, awful man. About the worst that you could think of. Let me tell you a few things about King Herod. When Herod first came to power, he slaughtered everyone in the former dynasty who was in leadership before him. He killed them all. At one point in his reign, he slaughtered half the Jewish Sanhedrin, which were the 70 priests and elders who made up the, essentially the Jewish Supreme Court of Israel. He slaughtered half of them. Another time, in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 court nobles to be executed. 300 Another time he had his own wife and her mother executed. Another time he had three of his own sons executed. It was this violent man and his violent attitude toward Christ that caused all of the events in our passage today. 
Herod desperately wants to know who this child is that is said to be born in Bethlehem. But after no one tells him the identity of the child, Herod decides, that's fine, I'll just kill all the boys in Bethlehem. And so that's what he did. He ordered all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area to be executed under two years old. And so Jesus' family is forced to flee to Egypt to protect Jesus. And then after Herod dies, the family travels back to Israel. Phew! Everything's safe now, right? Herod's dead. Wrong. Wrong. Because if you noticed in verse 22, when the family heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, they were terrified to go there. Why? Because Archelaus was Herod's son. And he was a chip off the old block. He was just as murderous and just as much of a tyrant as his father. And so, the family went to live in the backwoods town of Nazareth. This passage is so dark that it makes us just want to skip right over it. It's a little too intense for us during the holiday season. And so we just skip it the vast majority of the time. So why do I bring it up? How rude. <laughs> How rude of me. Why do I bring this story up? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's in the Bible. Because it's a part of the real Christmas story. I understand it's not a part of the Americanized version of Christmas. I get that. But it is a part of the real biblical Christmas. And so I don't think we should skip over it. I think if it's in the Bible, then that means God wants us to know it. He wants us to learn it. And He wants to teach us something through this dark story. So, what does this dark narrative teach us? Well, number one in your outline, it teaches us this. That Christianity brings peace and war. Christianity brings peace and war. King Herod in our story today personifies an important principle. And this is that principle. That the coming of Jesus not only solves problems, it also creates problems. The coming of Jesus solves problems and creates problems. Another very rarely read Christmas passage comes from Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And we read there that when Jesus' parents presented the boy in the temple, there was a righteous man there named Simeon who received a revelation from God right there in the moment. And Simeon turns to Mary and says this to her. 
Quote, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. End quote. Whoa, Simeon! Chill out, bro! Don't you know that Christmas is all about peace and goodwill toward men? What's with all the sword piercing your heart stuff? Just chill out, Simeon. Come on, man. But you know, Simeon was right. Simeon was right. Jesus did not come just to bring peace, but also to bring war. To bring war. In Ma- if you don't believe me, you can make a note to read Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus himself says this. I'll read it to you. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There's that sword talk again. I'm not supposed to talk about swords at Christmas. Jesus continues. He says, I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. End quote. Whoa, Jesus. That's a little intense. And I agree, it is a little intense. I mean, what happened to our gentle little Jesus? What's all this sword talk? So let me ask you, what is Jesus talking about? What happened to our gentle little Jesus? What is all the sword talk? Well, in many ways, becoming a Christian is like coming out of a calm harbor into a stormy sea. In many ways, that is what becoming a Christian is like. I'll give you some personal examples that maybe you could identify with. My non-Christian life was very turbulent. (laughs) Almost all of that was my fault. But it was very turbulent. And so coming to Christianity, for me, almost kind of felt like the opposite. It kind of felt like coming out of the turbulent storm at sea into the calm harbor. (laughs) It did feel like that. And, And my new Christian life gave me a very great amount of new peace. It did. At first. At first. But then some weird things started happening. After a while, I noticed that though I did have new peace in my life, I also had new strife that nobody really prepared me for. I had new strife. You see, a lot of things that used to bother me didn't bother me anymore. But a lot of things that never bothered me before now started bothering me a lot. (laughs) 
Let me be more specific. Becoming a Christian gave me a radical new peace of conscience. It did. I could rest in the fact that Jesus' blood removed all my sins and guilt. Before I became a Christian, I had a tough time sleeping at night because of all the things I had said and all the things I had done. But after I became a Christian, I finally could sleep. I started sleeping like a baby after Jesus saved me because of this new piece of conscience. I knew what Jesus' blood had accomplished. The hymn writer said of the new Christian life, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. And I rested in that truth, in that peace, and I slept like a baby for the first time. Really for the first time in my life. I could look back at all the terrible things I had said and done and thought and have confidence that none of those things could condemn me. And so I had a great and wonderful new peace of conscience. But also, I had a new peace in my identity. A new peace in my identity. I knew that in Christ I was no longer defined by my career or lack thereof or my net worth. I was defined by being his child. And Jesus Christ, you see, became, to me, the end of my struggle to prove myself. I'd worked so, so hard and failed so, so hard to prove myself, to live up to the standards of the world, to live up to the standards of those around me. And so Jesus was the end of that struggle, and it brought about a great amount of new peace in my life that I had never had before. But, while I did have these new wonderful forms of peace, at the very same time, I also had new strife. I'll give you three examples. First example, before I was saved, I didn't care a lick about other people. Like, not a lick. I only looked out for number one. I really only cared about one and only person on this earth. And that was me. But, and what, what you might not realize is that when you're that selfish <laughs> and you're that narcissistic, it actually brings about a pretty good amount of peace to your life. Because you just don't care about others. You just don't care what's going on around you. Nothing bothers you around you because you don't care. <laughs> you don't care what's going on. I don't care what I see on the news. I don't care about the tragedies. I don't care about the starving kids in Africa. Like, I don't care about any of that. <laughs> so, and at one level, I had a great amount of peace before I became a Christian. But, you know, when Jesus saved me, he started doing funny things to my heart. And like the Grinch, my heart grew three sizes almost in one day. 
I don't think I shed one tear in my whole life. Maybe as like a little bitty kid, but I really didn't cry at all. But then something bizarre happened after I was saved. I started crying all the time. Now I see the infomercial about the kids in Africa, and I'm just weeping like a baby. Grab, searching for tissue. This has never happened to me before. I didn't care about anything like that. Now all of a sudden, I deeply care. What's happening to me? <laughs> but that meant this. Opening myself up to others. Opening my heart up to others. To, to reach out, to serve them, to care for them, to love them. And I began doing that. But by doing that, I also opened myself up to hurt. I opened myself up to be used by them. And that's exactly what started happening. And it still happens to this day. It's been happening my entire Christian life. By opening up my heart to others, my heart is exposed out there. And I've been hurt many times. But that is the cost of love. That is what love is. When you open yourself up to love, you also open yourself up to hurt. And so this brought strife, new strife into my life that I never had before. Second example, because the world doesn't like Jesus, when I became a Christian, my closest friends stopped liking me. I lost my closest friends, all of them. I lost them all. Now, I made new ones. But the guys that I really loved and cared about that were in my kind of close circle, I lost. And like I said before, my heart was numb to all that. I wouldn't have cared as much. But now that I'm a Christian, I really care about these guys. And, and I saw these guys as, as lost and I saw these guys as a chance for me to evangelize and give them the hope of the gospel too. But they wouldn't let me. They thought I was a goof. They thought I'd lost my mind. And so they shunned me completely out of their lives. And I haven't talked to them to this day. They completely shunned me. They didn't want to hear the message of Jesus at all. They made that very clear to me. And that hurt. It hurts to hear that from your friends. And to this day, my identity as a Christian keeps certain people from wanting to be my friend. I played golf with a guy a few years ago, just kind of ran into him on the golf course and said, hey, you want to play together? I said, sure kind of got the small talking about things. And I said, what do you do? And he's a biologist. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, well, we can't be friends. I was like, oh, why not? <laughs> he said, well, because I'm an atheist, you know, and I, I believe in logic and science and reason, and you believe in fairy tales. So... We're not going to be able to be buddies. <laughs> and you know, that kind of thing hurts. It hurts. Being a Christian 
is my identity. And then identity causes people to shun me, as I'm sure many of you can identify with. Third example. A major form of strife that came with Jesus was a strife that continuously happens within me and within you, within all Christians. You see, before I was saved, everything inside me was pulling in the same direction. Everything in there was unified, going in one direction, and that direction was away from Jesus. We're all headed in the same direction inside. All headed away from Jesus. But, after I became a Christian, something wild happened. There were things inside of me that wanted to pull in the other direction now. You see, Scripture describes Christians as essentially having two natures. Two natures. We have a new nature that is working to be submissive to Christ. But we still have the old nature, the old man, that still desires to pull away from Christ. So at the same time, I had my old desires with me trying to pull away from Christ, but then new desires with me trying to pull toward Christ. And so as a result, becoming a Christian means joining a new fight within yourself. There's a fight between the flesh and the spirit from day one. Now, hear me right now. King Jesus is, at this very moment, in the midst of making all things new. He is. He is in the midst of putting all things under His feet and solving all our problems. He is. But, in order to solve all problems, He first has to create some new ones. And this is a hidden but very important message of Christmas. The baby in the manger did come to bring us ultimate peace. He did. But in order to do so, he had to stir some things up. And you might say, well, I don't like that. I don't understand why Jesus had to do that. I don't get it. I mean, couldn't Jesus have just figured out a way to bring peace to earth and to me without any strife? Well, that brings us to our second point in your outline, the reason for the strife. The reason for the strife. If you look at our story today, what was it that evoked such a violent reaction from Herod? What was it? It's because of what happened at the beginning of chapter 2. If you have your Bible, look at verses 1 and 2. If you don't, I'll read them for you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Okay, so when the Magi came to Jerusalem, and they said they're looking for Jesus, notice, they did not say, we're here looking for a personal Savior. No. They did not say, we're here looking for someone to teach us some new morals. Give us a better moral code than we've been working with. Is that what they said? No. They, and they also did not say, we're here looking for someone to help us deal with our guilt. We've got a lot of guilt and we need some help. Nope. That's not what they said. What did they say? They said, we're here to see the king. We're here to see the king. Can you show him to us? And this is the problem for Herod. And it's the problem for all of us. It's the problem for all of us. Jesus does not come as a good moral instructor. We can deal with that. Sounds good. We always need some good moral instruction, but that's not how he comes. Jesus does not come as a wise sage. He does not come as a life coach. Can't you just give us some tips on our finances, Jesus? Can't you just give us some tips on how to make it better, make our marriages better and make our careers better? Can't you just shoot us some tips? No. He does not come as a moral instructor. He does not come as a wise sage. He does not come as a life coach. He comes as king. And that made Herod's fists ball up. And it makes our fists ball up too. It does. Especially we in the West. We don't like kings. We like democracy. America. That's what we like. So what do you mean king? I don't have a king. There is no king over me. I'm the king. I run my life. I'm in charge here. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We cannot stand the idea of a king ruling over us. We can't stand it. But that is who Jesus is. He is not only your Savior, He is your King. He is. And that's the reason why our society 
has no problems with any other religion. Have you noticed that? It's a little bizarre, isn't it? They have no problems with any other religion, even a vile and cruel religion such as Islam. They're fine with it. Why? Because Muhammad never claimed to be king. Never. But Jesus did. And that caused and continues to cause strife. Great strife between groups of people and even within our own hearts. It causes all kinds of strife. So you ask, couldn't Jesus have just figured out a way to bring peace and no strife? No. The answer is no. There is no other way. And the reason there is no other way is because he truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no other way because he's king. And if Jesus is king, that means you're not. And it means I'm not. And that's something we can't handle. We have a tough, tough time accepting that truth. That he has every right to take my life, give, my, give me life. He can command me to do anything. He has all rights to me and I have no rights to him. We can't handle it. We cannot handle it. So if you're here today, maybe you're a skeptic, or maybe you're even a Christian, but you say, you know what, Christianity's nice. It's nice. And I've heard this so much, it's unbelievable. Christian, hey, Christianity's a nice thing. It's good. Christianity's good. But it should just be a private thing. You know? Just keep it to yourself. If it works for you, Great. I'm glad that it works for you. Just be quiet about it. Just keep it to yourself. If that's you here today, then you do not know the real story of Christmas. And you do not know the real story of Christianity. Because you do not know who that baby truly is lying in that manger. That baby is not the founder of a religion. The baby is king. He is king of everything. And so no, we won't keep it quiet. We can't keep it quiet. Because he's my king and he's your king. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, he's your king. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. That Jesus is Lord of all. So excuse me, if I don't keep that to myself. I think it's something you need to know. It's something you must 
No. And if that is true, if Jesus is King of Kings, then you only have three options in response. Only three options. Number one, take up arms against him. Number two, run away in terror. Or three, fall prostrate on the ground before him in total surrender. But those are your three options. That's the only options you have. Take up arms against him, run away in terror, or fall prostrate before him in total surrender. Only options you have. And if you read the Gospels, those are the only three reactions anyone ever has to Jesus. If you don't believe me, read them. You can read them in one day. <laughs> no one walks away from Jesus and says, Oh, wasn't he nice? <laughs> what a nice fella. He's so sweet. I just really like him. My son liked that. No one has a moderate reaction to Jesus in the Gospels. Because a moderate reaction to Jesus is not possible. It's not possible. You, when someone claims to be king, your options and reaction are limited. <laughs> and moderation ain't one of them. You don't have that option. And what's interesting is these reactions to the real Jesus still happen. It's still happen all the time. You find people who are okay with Christianity. I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, I like the moral code y'all have. That's so cool. I like all the good y'all do around the world. You know, all the, all the starving children, all that. That's great. It's great. It's great. They're, they're moderate, right? They're moderate toward Christianity. But then when you start talking about the real Jesus and the real Christianity, what happens? Fists ball up. Immediately. It's amazing. When you start telling people they're wicked and in active rebellion against their king, their creator, the fist ball up. You can't have a moderate reaction to the real Jesus. You can't say he's a good guy, he's a nice fella. Because when someone makes the claims that Jesus did and makes the claims that his disciples did about him, you can't have a moderate reaction. And what's really wild is these different reactions still occur within the Christian heart, within our own hearts. As we said earlier, while there is a part of us who has surrendered to Jesus, there is a part of us that has not. Part of us wants Jesus to be king. 
But another part of us is like, uh-uh. I'm still king. I'm still calling the shots. I'm still running the show. And there's conflict. There's strife within our own hearts. Until the end of our days, those two parts will be at war with each other. There will be these violent reactions against Jesus and His Word, even within the Christian heart. But let me give you some help. Let me give you some help. Let me tell you how you can get a leg up in the battle within. It will become much easier for you to submit to the kingship of Jesus the more you see what kind of king he is. Which brings us to our last point. Number three, the character of the king. The character of the king. Notice in this story that Mary and Joseph really don't want to go to Nazareth. But they're forced to. They have no choice. But why do they not want to go to Nazareth? Because there's nothing good in Nazareth. There isn't anything good in Nazareth. We see that said elsewhere. In the Gospels. There's nothing good in Nazareth. Nazareth is a podunk, uneducated town on the outside of the real goings-on of Jewish life in Israel. It's on the outskirts. It's on the outside. There's nothing good there. And that's exactly where God the Father wanted His Son to grow up. You see, our God is not the God of the elite. He's the God of the outcast. Our king did not come to be raised in a palace in Jerusalem. Our king came to be raised in a poorhouse in Nazareth. Our king is not lifted up above our suffering. No, he is near to the sufferer and to the brokenhearted. In fact, our king himself suffered more and was more brokenhearted in his life and in his death than anyone in the history of the world. He suffered more and was more brokenhearted than anyone. And his suffering in life and on the cross is what miraculously rescues and redeems us. It's the reason he was born. It's the very reason he came. And that's what is meant by verses 16 through 18, which we'll close with. Verses 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem 
and his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. One commentator wrote this about these verses. He said, The slaughter of these innocent boys in the place of Jesus is a prophecy and an anticipation of the slaughter of the innocent Jesus who will die in the place of all men. End quote. You see, there will be weeping in Rama. A mother will cry. But it won't be you. And it won't be your mother. It will be Jesus' mother. She will see her innocent son brutalized and beaten and whipped and mocked and spit on and laughed at. And she will weep and weep. But it is that innocent boy's, that innocent man's suffering that will be able to wipe away every tear from your eye. Because you will stand before the king one day. And he will take his hand, his nail-scarred hand, and he will wipe every tear from your eye. He cried and he suffered he went through chaos, the ultimate chaos, so that you can forever have ultimate peace. Peace between you and God.